everyone. Um, welcome to this webinar. I'm Francis Seeley from Global Net 21 and Enfield Voices. And this is one of the many webinars we do that cover what I hope is a lot of interesting topics. And today certainly is that. We're going to interview Maggie Brooks. Maggie is a person who used to live locally, still does, I believe, in Enfield. And um, she has had a history of being interested in poetry and literature. And she's recently published her first book, The Prisoner's Wife, which is a fantastic book, a compelling book, a really interesting story. It's based upon something that actually happened. And we're going to get her to talk about that. And, and I think everybody will find this really, really interesting. So Maggie, uh, Brooks, though you used to be called Maggie Butt, I know, so we can pick which name we want. So Maggie, welcome to this uh, webinar today, and I'm really pleased you joined us. And maybe you could start by just telling us a little bit about yourself and your background. Thank you so much, Francis. Uh, yes, I grew up in Southgate, where I still live, and, uh, and when I was growing up, my name was Maggie Brooks, that was my maiden name. Uh, my married name was Maggie Butts, and I have published six poetry collections under that name. So some people know me as one and some as the other. Uh, but when the uh, novel was first published, it was agreed that I would return to my Maggie Brooks name. And I can say a bit more about that in a minute, if you like. But uh, just, just to give you a little bit of my background, I uh, went to university in Cardiff. I, I went to school in uh, Southgate, obviously, uh, mentioned in school. I went to uh, Cardiff University and then became a journalist on the local paper in Devon and went from there into the BBC as a researcher and producer of documentaries. Had small children uh, and at that point began lecturing first at Southgate College and then at Middlesex University where I taught creative writing for 30 years. Uh, writing from time to time, writing a lot as time went on, writing poetry, writing stories. And I've always been a writer, I think, since I was about five years old. So uh, this, is, this is where it's got me to now. Yeah, no, I, re I remember meeting you some time ago and you were, you know, you were writing your poetry then. In fact, it began, didn't it, in 2003 with Quintana Row. That was your first set of poems. That's right. Uh, I had been publishing individual poems for some years before that, but Quintana Roo was the first pamphlet that I published. Uh, and that was followed by a full collection uh, in 2007, a full collection called Lipstick, which had a lot of feminist poems in, I suppose, stories about women. And stories about women have always been part of, been central really to the writing that I wanted to do. And so, uh, when the story of the prisoner's wife was told to me, I knew that it was something that I wanted to pursue. And you, um, you actually have an app as well related to your poetry, don't you? I do. Uh, yes, it makes me sound terribly modern. There, there is an app. I wrote a, a collection called um, Ali Pali Prison Camp. And this was when I discovered that Alexandra Palace had been used as uh, an internment camp for civilian internees during the First World War. So these were men who were not in the forces. These were men who just happened to hold Austrian, German, Hungarian passports and who were rounded up and imprisoned for the duration of the First World War. 
And the book that I produced about that uh, contained some of my own poems, but also extracts from memoirs and letters, photographs and paintings. And one of my colleagues at Middlesex University, a wonderful woman called Helen Benden, uh, was able to design an app, which means that you can walk around Alexandra Palace and uh, as you walk in certain places, you can be listening on your phone and you can hear the voices of some of the prisoners, uh, pre-recorded obviously, so that, so that it's a really uh, three-dimensional, four-dimensional experience to be out in the open in that place hearing voices from the past. Well, but before we go into talking about the book itself, I mean, what made you move from the BBC, which is quite an exciting job, to teaching and writing? It's a very exciting job, and I made some wonderful uh, documentaries, or was, was able to uh, work on some fantastic documentaries about, uh, the his about history, particularly. It made me realise that I should have done history at university, perhaps. Uh, I made documentaries about um, conscientious objectors for 40 minutes, um, about all sorts of things really. Uh, and then when my first daughter was born, I realised that I didn't want to go away for six weeks filming. Uh, so I thought, what else can I do for a little while? Maybe I could do a bit of teaching for a couple of years and began to teach and loved it so much that I never went back to the BBC. Ah, that's what, that's what it is. Lots of people do that. They leave when they have children and then something else happens in their life. Events change every, everything. Um, so you, you, you taught at Middlesex University, you said, and so you've been interested in creative writing all your life. Um, and you did a lot of poetry to begin with. Now, moving from writing poetry to writing a novel is as big as moving from the BBC to actually writing. What led you to make that adventure? Did you always have a no novel in you somewhere that you wanted to get out? Well, I think it's, it's, it's more complicated than that in a way, because I think all my life I've written stories and poems. Uh, both of the things have always been there. So it's, I've got books going back to when I was seven years old, filled with poems and stories. And I have written a number of novels before, uh, they are under my bed. <laughs> they have never seen the light of day. And, and I didn't particularly want to write this story as a novel, but it seemed to me that it had to be that. When I was first told this story, I wrote it initially as a long narrative poem. And long narrative poems are not things that have very big audiences, as you can imagine. It uh, appeared as a, a downloadable e-chapbook on a website, on a poetry website, uh, with an MP3 version of me reading it. And it, it had a few people looked at it and said, well, this is a great story. And then a few years passed and I thought, do you know what, that really was a great story. I should try and write it in a form that more people could get access to. And that form has to be a novel because uh, you know, although I love poetry and I still write poetry and I will continue to write poetry, uh, it's quite a niche market. 
But, I mean, you, you wrote the poetry, you wrote the book about a prisoner of war story, and you said you did things in Ali Pali. So you obviously have an interest in that period and, and, the, and the, the whole idea of being a prisoner of war. Is that because I, I think I read your father or relation was actually a prisoner of war. Is that one of the things that inspired you? Yes, I think it must be. I think, uh, I, I would say I'm, I am a pacifist. I would say that I am not... Um, at all interested in war per se, but I keep coming back to it. And I think I keep coming back to it in order to say what a terrible thing it is. Uh, and, and, and that comes out of my childhood. Uh, my mother had been a nurse during the Second World War. So she had seen the results of conflict close up uh, from a very young, as a very young woman. And my dad had been a prisoner of war, captured in um, Egypt and then taken up through Italy to Austria, where he spent, you know, a good deal, three years of his life <coughs> in a prison camp. And he never spoke about it, um, never said a single word about it. And I suppose that silence spoke very loudly to me about what he had suffered. Perhaps I wanted to discover what it was that he had endured, um, or perhaps it was just perhaps it was just wanting to return to that. And certainly in Ali Pali prison camp, you know, I wanted to make the point that it was it was soldiers on both sides or civilians on both sides who had endured this this kind of experience. And then what made it take off was meeting this character, real life character, Sydney Reed, wasn't it? Can you tell us about that? Yeah, um, I was at my mother's sheltered accommodation. Uh, they'd been talking over lunch about the war. And as we went up in the lift to take my mum back to her apartment, he said, I bet I could tell you a story about the war that would make your hair stand on end. And as an ex-journalist, uh, my ears pricked up and I sort of collared him and said, yes, come and tell me this story. And we stood in the corridor uh, and he told me that he had been a prisoner of war in a camp in Poland. And two men were brought back into the camp, escaped prisoners were brought back into the camp. When the Nazi guards had gone away and they were left in the hut, one of the prisoners said, I've got something to tell you all. The man who's with me isn't a man at all. He's my Czech wife and we have been on the run for 10 days. And Sydney described the uproar in the hut. Um, you know, a woman, a woman in the camp and the danger that that must have felt to uh, the characters who had just come back in. <coughs> and then the fact that uh, the men, the, the British prisoners, decided that they would hide her in plain sight, take care of her. And Sydney was obviously most interested in, in their altruism, their courage, in hiding her and protecting her but I was most interested in what that was like for her what was that like for a young woman 20-ish um, 
whose first language was Czech, to be with all of these men in a, in a, in a hut, a hundred men crammed into one hut. Uh, what was it like to be constantly silent because she had to keep quiet so that she wouldn't be discovered by the guards? What on earth was it like for her to be in that place? Uh, and that's what set me off thinking, I've got to write this. So the story that Sydney told you, um, you suddenly turned into a novel and you created these characters, Bill and Izzy are the two characters, the man, Izzy's a woman who dresses up as, as a man. So you wanted to tell a story, but you were also talking about what actually happened in a, in a st historical thing. Um, how did you manage to divorce the, or did you divorce the historical from the fiction or did you fuse it? Was that a problem you had or was that a sort of exciting challenge? Well, I'd say it was an exciting challenge. I, I went back to see Sydney after he told me this story initially and took as many notes and took notes about everything that he could remember. The, the way that they protected her because she was uh, disguised as a man and in the camp for six months. Um, it's a long, long time. Uh, he told me about the way she coped with her period. He told me about the way she dressed. He told me about the different things that other men did to try to distract the guards from her. Um, and it felt absolutely true. Uh, the details that he told me felt absolutely true. I then went away and began to do some more research, tried to find out whether anybody knew this story. Uh, joined, uh, Sydney had been imprisoned in uh, Lambsdorff, prisoner of war camp in Poland. I joined the Lambsdorff Association, tried to find out whether anybody had heard this story, contacted people at the camp in Poland, and, and no, this story was unknown to, to them. So I thought, well, what I've got to do then is to do my research and find out as much as I can about the context so my period as a historical documentary maker for the BBC came in extremely handy. I knew where to go. I knew I had to go to the National Archives in Kew. I had to go to the Imperial War Museum. I went to the British Library and took out memoirs. I found memoirs online. I found unpublished uh, letters. So I had a, a stack of research and you will know yourself that <clears throat> the amount of research one has to do that doesn't make it into the final documentary or the final novel is, is enormous. Um, and then I discovered or realised that someone who had been in prison camps at, at this time in Eastern Europe would have ha had to undertake something which is known as the Long March or the Death March. And I didn't know anything about this in Europe. I, know, I knew that such things had happened in Japan, but I didn't know anything about it. Um, and so I began to research that. And essentially what happened was that as the Soviet troops approached from the east, the Nazi prison camps were evacuated and the, the men who were in them were forced out. This is January 1945, and they were forced out into the most terrible winter conditions. They were forced out at night. Uh, 
minus 20 degrees centigrade. Um, they were ill-equipped, badly dressed, underfed, had been imprisoned for many years, and they were force marched for a total of about 500 miles across Europe. Many, many people died. Um, the reasons for it are <coughs> slightly unclear. There is a school of thought that Hitler had decided he wanted to use this body of men, about 200,000 men, as a human shield to protect his last stand in the Baltic. Um, it also may be that they just didn't want them to be taken into the Soviet army and to be able to, to join uh, the fight against the Nazis in that way. But anyway, this happened. No, I was going to say that the death march is really interesting and it sort of comes from the end, it comes at the end of the book and, and, and in a way you show the history not just of a love affair, um, but you show the history of what happened with the German troops and the Russian occupation, don't you? I've just finished re reading Richard Overy's Russia's War, which is a great book, and you, you can see the fear they had. You, this story doesn't, it, it takes place in Silesia, which is a German-speaking part of Czechoslovakia, or what was Czechoslovakia, and the fear of Russian reprisals was huge, wasn't it? So just tell us how the story starts with, you know, the, the, the people who, um, the prisoners coming on to Izzy and her mother's farm to help out and the oily captain who brought them there. Because um, that's really what happened to begin with, wasn't it? That's how they met. And that's how, why they decided to escape to freedom. Yeah. Uh, before I get to that, I'm just going to say one more thing, which was having discovered the, the death march had happened and that uh, my characters, Bill and Izzy, would have had to have taken part in that. I, I thought I can't write this. This is just too harrowing, too difficult, too complicated. And I thought, well, perhaps if I went there and saw it, I would be able to. So my long-suffering husband came with me to uh, the Czech Republic and we drove within the Czech Republic looking for settings where this story might have begun and then drove uh, and then went up to Lambsdorff in a very appropriately snowy uh, March day and then drove the fi 500 miles through into Germany. And at that point when I'd looked and I'd seen and I'd thought, could this, you know, what, what does this feel like? I got out of the car, I'd felt the snow on my face, I'd listened to the silence. Um, then I thought I can begin. And then where I did begin, of course, was back at the point where they met. <clears throat> and Sidney Reeve was not able to tell me anything about how they met. He only knew about what had happened from the point where they came into the prison camp. So I had to use my imagination. I had to uh, think about ways that might have been possible for them to meet. I did know because of my dad's experience that uh, the majority of men in Nazi prisoner of war camps were not kept in the camp for the duration of the war, but were actually sent out on working parties. Um, and, and so they were sent down the mines or into quarries, which is what happens to Bill and Izzy and where Sydney uh, knew them. And, uh, and also agricultural work, forestry, 
I mean, the, the, according to the Geneva Convention, they weren't supposed to send them into anything that would help the war effort. But of course they did. They sent them into factories that, that uh, were helping the war effort. So I decided that Bill would be an agricultural worker and that Izzy would be a farm girl. And, and they first met when Izzy and her mother were needing help on the farm because her father and her brother had gone to join the partisans. And the, the Nazi guards brought in this group of six men to the Czech farm. And there she first set eyes on Bill and he set eyes on her. And they came back throughout the summer to help with different harvesting and planting that took part place on the farm. The, the chap that I call the oily captain, the, um, the Nazi guard who is in charge of them, becomes a regular visitor at the farm and we're never sure if he's interested in Izzy's mother or whether he's just there for uh, professional reasons or whether he is a farmer who is away from home and missing uh, the farm. That he, grew, that he grew up on and worked on himself. And of course they decided that they couldn't stay because the Russians were coming and there was fear of rape and there was fear of being shot. And so they decided to escape, yes. And they then got caught and they went into a prisoner of war camp. And then suddenly we've got all these wonderful characters. Now, I mean, did you create them or were they actually there? There's Rolf Maddox, who sort of becomes the big brother, the strong press in the beginning. There's, there's Max, who is, you said, like a, you know, stack in Russian door where you don't know really what's inside of him. Um, there's also um, Scotty, who actually gives his life in the end to save Izzy. And there's Tucker, who is the nasty English man who blackmails them into giving them food from the Red Cross parties. It's a wonderful group of people, including people like Kurt, the nasty German guard and the commander of the prison camp wasn't nasty. Did these all exist? Or were these people you had to create to make the, the novel real? Largely, I created them but they almost all came out of something that Sydney had told me. Uh, so that Scotty came from a remembrance that, uh, that Sydney had, that, that in one of the camps he was in, there was a member of what he called the Glasgow Razor Gang. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And, but maybe this guy wasn't so scary after all. Uh, and then the character of Scotty developed as I thought more about him and wrote about him. The characters, the characters were developed for the original long poem that I wrote and then expanded <clears throat> into the novel. I knew that there had to be people who guarded her and took care of her and they were how Max and how Ralph came about. I knew that I wanted someone who was um, perhaps a university student. So I wanted people who were in different uh, walks of life in, in civilian life, who would have different takes on what it would be to look after this, this young woman and to protect her for such a long time. 
I mean, the story is about these men who really protected a young woman. Um, and the story develops from there, and they all have a role to play. What I found interesting was that right through the story, different people, depending on the circumstance, was the strongest one, the leader. Rolf at the beginning, everyone relied on Rolf. There was a time when Max, they, they relied on them. Bill, when he was in the farm, was sort of the leader. And then right at the end on the death march, Izzy became the strong one. I mean, did you sort of plan that or did it come in your imagination? Because it's a really interesting thing that people's leadership role depends upon the circumstance in which they find themselves. It is. And I think it's true that we are different people in different places, aren't we? As the novel unfolded and as I began to write, I, I realised that, that Izzy would have to develop that she, at the beginning, she's a girl who's never left her farm in the Czech Republic. She's never been out into the world further than the, the local town, market town. Suddenly she's seeing the world, she's meeting people, and she needs to become strong. She must have been so strong to, uh, you know, I thought about what she must have been like, that she must have been, she must have been quite stroppy. Uh, she must have been very independent to decide that she's going to marry this uh, English soldier and go on the run with him dressed as a boy. You know, it, immediately there is a, a, a core of absolute iron in, in, in this young woman. And then it seemed to me that as time went on and other characters became physically unwell, that she, and, uh, and she had not been a prisoner for four years. She was physically fitter than they were. Um, she, she would definitely be the one who would be able to, to be the strength that saved other people in the end. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that came out right at the end and that was really interesting. Tell you the other thing as well, I mean, I spent a lot of my life doing digital things, really 21st century things, but when I read a novel, I'm really old fashioned. I like a beginning, a middle and end. And I, I suppose that's because, you know, I love 19th century novels. Um, and you did that, you, you, your approach was linear. You didn't do this postmodernist thing of having people in one time frame and moving to another. Sometimes that works successfully. Other times it's so complex you get lost in the first 10% of the book, but you chose a linear story right the way through. Was that a conscious decision? Well, you have my editor at Penguin to thank for that because the version that I went to her with started at the point where they're captured and they're in the camp. And then it told the, um, the love story of how they got there um, as, as a flashbacks through, through the story as it moved forward. And she said, do you know what? This is such a complicated story that I think we need to understand how they came to this place how they fell in love before we get to the point where they're captured so that so that we are really sympathizing with them and in tune with their problem and, and the, the danger that they're in so so as i say that that you know a novel is not just one person's work really uh, any more than a tv program is it's um it's something that you get advice and are happy to take the advice that's given to you. Well, thank, thank goodness for your editor, because um, 
you know, I, I love that story when it goes right from beginning to the end and, you, and it builds up and you're not, you know, going everywhere and all over the place. Um, I mean, when you wrote it, did you have a message you wanted to get over? Or do you believe that there is never one message? Every message depends on the person who reads it. Well, I think that's absolutely true. Of course, the message depends on the person that reads it. But as I say, I have all, all my life <clears throat> hated uh, the idea of war and, uh, and in a way, you know, not understood why we continue to do it. It seems extraordinary to me. But uh, so I suppose it was very much an anti-war message. It was a message that um, this, this ha has happened, this could happen again. Uh, the message that we need to unite, we need to know each other better. Um, we need to, I mean, my dad, who was a prisoner of war, was the most ardent supporter of the common market and the EU when it came about because he felt that those were things that we could put in place to ensure that if we were economically connected, we were much less likely to be divided by other political uh, by other political things and to end up fighting one another again. I mean, I, th I think all that comes out. I mean, the, the, the fact that there's no, you know, the Germans aren't all baddies, the, the English aren't all goodies. You see good and bad in, in, in every one of them. I, I, you know, it's quite interesting because they're, they're, there's a happy ending to the story, isn't there? I mean, Bill and Izzy get to England. <laughs> oh, I've given it away, I'm sorry. But what <laughs> I wanted to say is because they came to England, did you ever get to meet any of them? No. I have never met uh, the, real, the real people. I hope that as a result of this book, someone somewhere will say, oh, do you know what? That was, that's my grandparents. This book's about my grandparents. And will get in touch with me to tell me uh, the real story of what happened. And no doubt they faced uh, different problems, different hardships. Um, uh, and I, I hope that I have been, you know, that this is, this is a novel, it's not a piece of non-fiction, but I hope that it is truthful. It it's, remains truthful to the time, the period, the people, and what those people endured. Well, I, mean, I, I certainly think it does that. I mean, I think it's an incredibly compelling novel. And um, I mean, I really, really enjoyed reading it. If enjoy is the right word of a novel yes. that kind, but you, you know what I mean. <laughs> Anyhow, you've, you, you've done your first novel. You've got, all, you've got all these other novels under your bed. Are you going to start publishing them or do you have another novel in mind that you want to do? Well, having written quite a few novels uh, without having a publisher for them, I am now talking to my publisher about what they would like in the next novel. So I have, uh, I would like to write another novel. I've, I very much uh, enjoy the business. You know, it's very, it's like reading, but it takes longer in a way that you're creating this world uh, and disappearing into it. I mean, we've sort of come to the end of the 30 minutes now. Now, if, if anybody wanted to find this novel, where would they go and get it? And if they wanted to find, to find out more about your work and what you do, how would they do that? Okay, thank you. 
Uh, well, the novel is available at all good bookstores uh, and, and online, of course. Um, it's available uh, in a number of countries around the world. There's a, a, a Dutch version and there are many other translations in the pipeline. If you want to find out more about me and my background and contact me, then the best way to do that is to look for my websites. I have two websites, one for each name. <laughs> um, the poetry website is www.maggiebutt.co.uk and the other one is maggiebrooks.uk. So uh, I think they're not hard to find. Okay, two names, and even you forget which one goes with which. No, um, I, I, no, I think I would do the same. Okay, well, I think we come to the end of it, and that's a really interesting interview, and it's based upon an incredibly interesting story. So I hope people will buy the book because they'll not regret it. It gives you a lot of insight into what people went through in that period in a situation that is quite unique in a way. And it tells you a lot about people's strengths at different times, it tells you about the situation in Germany at that time and in Czechoslovakia and what people had to face. And it is, does have a, a good ending, which I think um, Jane Austen would have sort of congratulated you on. So, you know, thank you for, for doing this. I think it's been a great interview based on a great book and I hope people will buy it. So uh, we'll end this interview now.